You are listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast, part of Just Powers, an interdisciplinary and community-engaged network of research projects focused on climate justice issues and socially just approaches to energy transition. I'm Dr. Sheena Wilson, and in this podcast, we explore the idea of deep energy literacy. In this first series, titled Deep Celerities, we begin by investigating questions, issues, challenges, and potentials of solar energy. Specifically, this series will shed light on a solar energy infrastructure project proposed for installation in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. This solar project proposed by EPCOR, the municipal utility, for installation at their E.L. Smith water treatment plant has evoked a range of divergent and sometimes unanticipated responses and imaginaries as stakeholders speculate about what futures are possible and preferable at the intersections of energy futures, ecological futures, indigenous futures on land rights, feminist futures, municipal futures, and climate futures, to name but a few. Through a series of interviews that seek to explore these diverse perspectives, we examine both the perceived challenges and potentials of this energy transition project. Focused on deep energy literacy, we look to these conversations for insights into approaches and strategies that have the potential to disrupt power relations and create more just energy futures for all. We recently sat down with Charles Richmond, coordinator for Sierra Club Canada Foundation's Edmonton chapter and champion of active civic engagement in good governance and empirically based environmental advocacy in public life. In 2017, Richmond was awarded the Alberta Lieutenant Governor's Leadership for Active Communities Award, and some of his selected accomplishments include assisting in the establishment of urban wildlife corridors and parks in Alberta, particularly in the Edmonton area, establishing one of North America's only urban wildlife passes, and protecting White Mud Ravine and Tufa Spring as an urban nature reserve. When he is not attending local council meetings or researching environmental and civic issues, you might find Charlie guiding public nature walks or enjoying the urban wildlife corridors and parks in Alberta with family and friends. Thank you so much for coming in today. This is really nice to have you here in the studio. Um, I'm hoping that you can introduce yourself a little bit so that our listeners can learn a little bit about who you are. Hi, I'm uh, Charlie Richmond and um, since retirement, I have uh, coordinated Sierra Club locally, um, Sierra Club Canada. Well, I was doing environmental work anyway, but I started volunteering with Sierra Club around uh, 2004, 2002, maybe even. But eventually assumed this position. Um, of, it's just it's a group coordinator, um, just coordinating a bunch of a bunch of um, friends, largely from university or research council, uh, intervening on um, on city issues, city environmental issues. Right. And and how did you become interested in these conversations around the intersection of municipal politics on the one hand and then environmental issues? Well, first of all, I'm an immigrant from the States and it was a very activist area, the San Francisco area. I just came up to Canada for grad school, which is a very long time ago. Um, there were some political situations, as you know, that led many of us to come north and we're very glad to be north of the border these days. <laughs> Um, but but when I was at Berkeley, I was in the um, uh, hiking club, and um, or was really climbing is what I was doing. But um, Berkeley and Stanford were um, the first two groups that with with John Muir that uh, organized to become the Sierra Club in the latter 1800s uh, in the U.S. So it's it's one of it's the oldest environmental 
uh, organization uh, in North America. And it was eventually brought, it was um, BC Sierra Club was a um, chapter of the OCR Club. Elizabeth May was the executive director. And um, <clears throat> she th thought, you know, this re should really be Canadian. So she took it Canadian and became the first executive director of Sierra Club Canada. So it, well, I'm just saying because because I was in, uh, in, in hiking club, everybody was, um, was part of... Um, Sierra Club, pretty much, and environmental activism. This was an era of in environmental activism in the mid '60s, and and also um, I think there was a tradition at that time of um, uh, well, Americans are much more litigious than Canadians, and so um, and Sierra Club U.S. at least lesser in Canada, but it's getting that way. Has relied on the law. So uh, as an organization, for instance, we don't commit civil disobedience. It's a policy, and uh, nothing wrong with that um, as a venerable tradition. But, um, uh, you know, the Greens do it, but Sierra Club is elected not to do that. So uh, we use the law as a tool as much as possible. So it goes way back. And you said you did some environmental work as well. Um, was your career linked also to these environmental issues? Not, not locally. I was in what became the environmental... Uh, research and Engineering Department of Alberta Research Council, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now AITF, or I may have even changed its name. It used to be on campus, but each province had a research institute. And so I was, uh, I originally joined chemistry there, and then that was wrapped up at Alberta Research Council into this with a number of other groups, which exposed me to um, a lot of contemporary environmental issues, um, especially surrounding tar sands, for instance. I can imagine. Well, there's so many things we could talk about today, but I particularly wanted to focus our conversation on EPCOR's proposal to build a new solar project just south of the existing E.L. Smith water treatment plant in the Edmonton River Valley. Well, we think that, that the um, a, a solar farm is a great project. We just think it's in the wrong place, and it certainly doesn't have to be there. That's the, the simple answer. That's the simple and answer. There's a number, a number of reasons for that, um, that we're, so, we're very much concerned about location. <clears throat> and... Um, from our analysis, it's not so much the environmental impact, um, but there are there are two issues, and I spoke to these at uh, at council um, initially. Um, one is that we're against the industrialization um, of the River Valley, just on principle, and there is a bylaw, a city bylaw, which is the River Valley and Ravine ARP. Area, and which is a zoning overlay, which um, any developments have to be deemed essential in that. And there is a, um, a court of Queen's bench surrounding, uh, affirming that, the, the, what means, it means to be deemed essential, right? Essentialness is a, is a tricky topic at law. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to speak further to it. So there's two issues. One is, is that it, it I mean, we, we feel as, a, as an organization that, um, as I said before, the, the law is one of our most powerful tools in conservation. I mean, the, 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 the standard, um, I guess, philosophy is that, that the law constitutes a social contract between the, the, the people and the, the government. And um, uh, people increasingly, I find, in Edmonton over the past decade have, are more cognizant of um, city bylaw, which is the law that, that governs that, that river valley. 
that the city only has bylaw passing powers. It can't pass laws, statutes. And so, so we feel that there's an argument that, in fact, it, it, compromi- it compromises that, or it arguably does legally. And the other is that um, it, al- it also sets a precedent. We, found that, we find that that, that that bylaw has been, or the, the constraints under the bylaw have been relaxed with seemingly every new development. We had a recently... A couple of years ago, a giant tinker toy, um, a jungle gym on Upper White Mud Creek, which is part of the um, uh, ARP, part of the zoning overlay. Um, how that could be essential to being in the in, in that on that location um, is is really questionable. I mean, you can stick that anywhere, you know, playground or whatever. But the the people at the um, at the ski hill wanted to, that was part of their business plan. And then we had most recently a Nordic spa. Well, that's, that's a good thing. Of course, there's merit to all of these proposals. You know, the, the uh, Nordic spa, that's, that's great. But does it have to be sited down in the river valley? Every time you get, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be industrialization, but every time you, you reduce um, the, the river valley, which is arguably Edmonton's, you know, most valuable resource, for us environmentalists, we would at least contend that um, you eat up land in perpetuity. It, you never go backwards. It's very difficult to un, to conserve land that's has found a use, um, and it, because that will be reused. And if you look at it over time, you just simply chip away at it one time, one at a time. So there's there's two issues. One is the legal precedent, as I said. Um, because it broadens, it broadens. They said, "Well, we approve this, we approve that. Why, why not a gravel pit?" Eventually, and the other one is, is that in fact you simply there's a finite amount of land, and in, in, in my lifetime, it's, it's I've seen very few areas that have been deindustrialized and returned. So, so that's the um, that that was our our major concern, um, and and we in fact had some uh, a number of dealings with Epcor corporate directly. Um, because they advi- were advised to discuss it with with uh, us, and uh, I don't know how many others. Uh, very very uh, gracious reception, and so on. But they were by that time they had um, they had proceeded into the project. And when you have an engineering team working on a project, and you're suddenly told, no, that that uh, ought not to happen. There are other considerations. That there's a huge public will for preservation of the river valley. Well. Um, it's hard for, for a team to uh, let go of that. Can you maybe explain to listeners a little bit what the importance is of conserving the, the river valley and keeping it a conservation site, if we want to call it that? Well, the Sierra Club is biased, of course, because <laughs> we're into natural spaces, and we don't have many. And, and uh, I'm not a sociologist, uh, but I do... Um, I do believe the uh, the literature that, in fact, natural spaces are increasingly important as our society becomes more urbanized and disconnected from nature. So you, you, you talked about some of the challenges of the project. Do you see any potential benefits to a project like the solar uh, farm if it's located elsewhere? Oh, as I said, the project's a great project, mm-hmm. and it can easily be uh, cited elsewhere. Um, I think green power, uh, first of all, I think obviously Sierra Club has a very long-standing, um, based on, on the scientific literature, um, concern of um, climate change. I, I don't need to defend that. And so uh, uh, clearly um, 
solar power is is one solution. Green it's green power in general, and uh, wind power is another example. And in in terms of so it doesn't have to be solar power, and certainly you're aware of that being on the on the committee advisory committee, um, and we argued and got them got the the numbers for it. Epcor uh, could have simply, I mean, green power. There's a whole marketplace for that, and. Um, you're not certainly not a communist if you if you advocate for green power, because it's now a, another thriving business. Um, you could buy wind power from Medicine Hat. Okay, let's talk about cost for a moment. So, Epcor says that the farm will power the E.L. Smith Water Treatment Plant in a socially and environmentally responsible way that is most cost-effective for ratepayers. So, what do you see as the costs of this type of project? I'd, li- I'd like to start with the monetary costs because they've presented spreadsheets um, which showed a um, a huge difference. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was around $30 million dollars. Uh, as opposed if they were to get power uh, from elsewhere. And um, I believe it was Councillor Henderson asked if they could run a triple bottom line uh, in terms of the environmental costs uh, and the environmental, essentially the services um, that are provided by maintaining a natural uh, ecology, which that site is is not. It's, it's Right now it's a cleared field, but it would hopefully be restored. Um, we had a problem with the triple bottom line um, because it's simp- it's using the same um, uh, what we consider specious um, analysis. The triple bottom line has, even though it was origin- was very popular for a long time, um, it's been around with us for twenty six years now, and uh, it's standard in uh, when you're when you're evaluating the the environmental costs and benefits of ne- of ecosystems. The problem is that there's also what it doesn't cost. It's really direct. It's 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 assigning a monetary value to like a tree. Well, we know that a tree will eat up so much CO2, and you can do that. But what's missing is what's the value to people? How much would people be willing to pay to to pay a year in their taxes to keep a tree, for instance? And um, so in response to the triple bottom line, you know, in the, I guess it was our second um, intervention out of six at city council. Um, luckily, um, HBR, Harvard Business Review, um, had an article two weeks prior um, on the triple bottom line. And the author, the original author of the triple bottom line, which had, at that date was 25 years, had now disavowed it because of its misuse. And I presented uh, HBR to, I uh, gave a copy to the clerk for each counselor on that. And um, uh, and that was a good, at least, we always try to use these interventions to, to lecture to counsel. <laughs> and so it was, it, was, um, it was noticed saying, don't use a triple bottom line again. Because it's it's so misused, it's 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 like red flags to bulls. In any event, the there are various numbers which were presented, um, and because there were quibbles about uh, the differential costs. So what we did was when we, when we got some clarification as to how these what these were based on, um, it was essentially for the lifetime of the project, um, and so I just wondered what would be the cost. Because the, the, the term that was used was the cost to the ratepayer. It was capital R, ratepayer. This was repeated often. 
in fact, for five different interventions. The cost of the ratepayer was going to be, you know, $17 million, $29 million, various numbers, you know, depending on how they costed it. I said, okay, well, let's take that range. So we simply um, took, I, you know, that those numbers and that those tens of millions and um, divided it by 25 or 30 because the amortization period was either 25 or 30 years depending on which presentation was made by EPCOR. We divided that by – because 12 months and we divided that by the number of residential ratepayers in the city because when you talk about what's the cost of the ratepayer, what do you see? I'm not sure what you how you think – do you think of – the cost over the lifetime of a project for everybody, or do you think of the cost, the additional cost on your water bill? Now, your water bill is, and which you get monthly, um, and my water bill, uh, if I separate out from the other components, is about fifty bucks on average. And so, Sheena, can you, um, if I can use your name directly? Um, so, so what do you what would you what would you be? Can you take a guess as to what the the cost when you divide that out? Divide them by twenty five by twelve by two hundred fifty thousand. I'm going to guess it's not very much. Just take a guess. <laughs> You're probably in the pennies. Is it in the pennies? It's it's close to the. It could be in the pennies. Right. The the, the range we came to was uh, to, somewhere between ten and twenty four cents additional. To a fifty dollar a month to right. a fifty dollar water bill for saving seventy plus acres, and um, <clears throat> as as one councillor put it, um, we don't need a referendum. That's a no brainer. When you work it out to a per, it's pennies per acre, okay. And um, uh, EPCOR never never responded to that. They kept talking through four more interventions. It's cost to the ratepayer. So only at the last. Uh, council meeting. They, essentially, they never answered that question until the last council meeting where this was addressed, where, when of course spoke. They surfaced the number that they had calculated, 18 cents a month, just somewhere between 10 cents and 24 cents. We weren't too much off. Um, actually, our, our, our best, our, the mean calculation that we that we predicted and we had spoken to, this is on the record, was 14 cents. So we came out with 14 cents. They came out with 18 cents. I won't, we, won't, we won't quibble with EPCOR's analysis. I think that's – the point was is it entirely subverted their, 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 their contention that, that this was – the fact that they wanted it close, that was one of their arguments, because of the cost – that minimized the cost to the ratepayer. That's very troublesome, especially when EPCOR – EPCOR is owned by us. It's owned by the city of Edmonton. We're the sole shareholder. In other words, I, I think, I think it's un unquestionable that this is going to affect their brand. Now, Sierra Club is not going to go out and desell EPCOR because we'd be subject to a, to a lawsuit. But what we can s simply do is um, present the truth as we see it, our opinion, on our website. And Sierra Club or other websites uh, you know, in the U.S., um, where they're or BC or wherever where they're attempting to market will um, uh, will pick this up. So the question is, what's the how how will this affect the brand? And I think it already has affected the brand. 
I'm curious about the fact that they're, you know, arguing to put this project onto their property, but there's also some disagreement about whether that is their property or their property to make use of. So do you want that's, to speak that's, to that that's issue? That's a, you know, a legal question which I, I'm not competent to ask or to answer. The, the uh, of, of course, when this was transferred, there was a series of properties which were transferred to... Um, uh, to EPCOR, most recently, uh, drainage properties, which were all city of Edmonton properties, by the way. Part of the properties were scheduled, were, were properties which had been scheduled for expansion if they needed to expand the pumping plant. Um, that's that's another question. And so I think it's, it's, it's complicated for a number of reasons. But irrespective of whose property it is, it's, uh, we believe it requires council approval, and some councillors do, and there's uh, I'm not sure if this has been decided, but they certainly heard, heard a lot about it. Whether it goes to council or whether it goes to the board of directors of EPCOR, the city of Edmonton has a representative on that because, of course, it is, it's wholly owned at the moment uh, by the city. It, so it could be stopped by Fayette uh, uh, in, in a number of ways, and, and we're, appealing, we're starting by appealing to the city. And in fact, that's part of that's what you've raised is part of the part of a larger question is should the city of Edmonton be in the business of being in business? Because there's an immediate there's a prima facie conflict of interest when they're voting on something that in fact is affecting the the value of a um, of a company. They're looking to in fact some revenue to offset taxes um, from EPCOR. You said some of the councillors believe that there's a need to have this approved, but I think it actually needs approval because of those um, bylaws that require that um, any industry that goes into the river valley oh, that's be, what I meant. Yes. Be, uh, be, be necessary. Yeah, and they, yeah. they, you know, that they, they have to go, in order to be proven necessary, they still also have to go through an environmental assessment, a historical assessment, and... Uh, Archaeological, a yeah, number of them, yes. Yeah, yeah. You've forgotten one yes. that's, that we think is, is most important. It requires a political assessment okay. because ultimately it's a political judgment and that's why we've spent so much time intervening on this is because if... If we convince councillors that this is inappropriate, inappropriate use, the industrialization of our river valley, they can, in fact, simply summarily stop it. But I am curious, um, because EPCOR's application through the public process uh, determined that the project is in the public interest having regard to the social, economic and other effects of the project, including its effect on the environment. So I'm just wondering what you think about these assessment processes and how oh, I EPCOR with- thinks about public interest or what the trade-offs are between social, economic, environmental. These are, you know, we hear a lot about trade-offs in these types of conversations. So do you have any thoughts about what we're trading off? Well, first, well, first of all, the bylaws as a law, you don't, you don't do trade-offs in, in a legal adjudication. This is not a civil issue, okay, uh, and, and uh, a civil action. It, it has to do with a, a, a law, a legal uh, a bylaw. So it's, it's very different. I, you don't, you, I really think that the trade-offs is a um, – I mean, that's what the po- politicians is, have to do is they have to weigh trade-offs. But um, as I say, there's a public expectation which is very clearly set by the bylaw, the River Valley and Ravine ARP. Um, uh, but we, uh, the environmental, I mean, the question should be, is there an alternative there? I remember in the velodrome issue, the question was, if you have a velodrome, should it be allowed in the, in the ARP or immediately adjacent to the ARP? In this case, the, the velodrome was in Argyle, but it had a, a critical ecological node on two creeks. 
Um, or could it be anywhere? I mean, a velodrome, you're going to ride a bike around on a track. Does it need to be there, right? Yeah, those are, th that's, that, that's the kind of consideration. Um, and we found that EPCOR made no compelling um, they, there was there was simply no compelling response to any of this. Uh, at the end, they scurried around trying to. Um, this is very late in the process. After a year in the process, to get um, uh, support, and they have all kinds of wonderful things um, uh, that they were going to get. They were going to use um, indigenous names. <laughs> they were going to have a uh, an indigenous herb garden. <laughs> Um, there was going to be a um, a seat on the uh, a viewing seat on the opposite side of the river, um, where you could view the, the the river and the solar farm, and you could also charge your iPhone because there would be a little solar panel built into the seat. I mean, this 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 was absolute insanity. It kept going like that. Some people called it redwashing, by the way. So so uh, in, in terms of, uh, if, if that's what you meant, in terms of all the added value or what EPCOR means, actually, it was really sad. Yeah, it's interesting. You're speaking to some solidarities because Sierra Club is not the only group that has expressed opposition to this project. There have also been some Indigenous communities that are not happy about this and people upset about this for different reasons. And I think about, uh, in my research, something that I call deep energy literacy, right, where I, I say that we have to think in complex ways about um, the decisions that we're making so that we don't continue to reproduce the same types of oppressions and and extraction of uh, value from the land in the ways that we have. And I, I hear you say saying some of that as well, too. And so I just, hope so. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just curious to hear um, what kinds of knowledges and, and practices do you think are missing from these current bureaucratic approval processes? So what gets left out of these decisions? Whose voices are heard? Whose voices aren't heard? What should we be thinking about when we think about um, where a, a solar farm like this should be placed, for example, because, you know, you've said that you think it's a great project just in the wrong place. So when we move it somewhere else, what what should we be thinking about? Who should be part of that conversation? You know, what should be informing those decisions? Well, if there's a if there's an area of this private land owned outside of a zoning overlay, okay, where a, where a solar um, a farm would be permitted, and I think here of any of EPCOR's staging areas, for instance, for its vehicle fleet, they've got pieces of land all over in the tablelands which would work. One should ask, however, if if EPCOR should be um, if looking at all alternatives, uh, if it should be supporting our green energy uh, industry in general. Um, certainly, we can use more wind farms and and uh, um, uh, certainly solar solar farms uh, elsewhere in the province, especially farther south where, where you get more energy uh, coming in. Part of, part of the problem started, I'm told by council, is there was, in, in terms of meeting its, its uh, green energy um, targets, that um, the council decided that, uh, that it should happen uh, within the city because of the economics rather than moving part of the economics of energy outside the city. Councillors have confessed, some of them, to me at least, that that was probably inadvisable for, and they simply never contemplated uh, something like this. One thing that you said earlier was, uh, you said the value of the tree, right? The the 
the triple bottom line is an insufficient way of thinking about the environment. I haven't read that article, but I'm going to imagine it's because it doesn't take into consideration all sorts of other ways that we value nature aside from simply the cost of timber or the cost of a tree. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how we need to to rethink our relationships to the environment at, the, at this time, even when we're putting in new energy projects, right? That's, and that's a question that's that's well beyond me. I spend a great deal of my time thinking about the environment. There are other issues than climate change as well. And, um, and I've certainly spent, a, I mean, I subscribe to a number of sci- scientific periodicals, right, and journals. Um, so that's, let me, let me just say that I'm devoted to that question, but it's not one that I feel I can answer adequately. But do, do I think, you know, what should be the public involvement in that decision? I, I think that given that there's, an, first of all, there's an imperative in terms of climate change. No, no one, almost no one questions that. Um, and so I think that the public, if this had been properly rolled out as a, as a reasonable solution that didn't compromise the environment for the environment, <laughs> Um, that people would have been very much behind it. I find it, I found a huge change since I was first involved with the environmental movement in the mid-60s uh, as, a, as a kid, I mean, an undergraduate. And, um, well, I think this is, I think environmental issues are really at the top of, of, all of all of the public. And there's a whole lot more, by the way, which has to do with the amount of arable land, the population problems. Is, uh, we could go on and on. Um, and that's a, another side issue. But, but believe it or not that there are, there are uh, although the, the climate change gets the most press these days, there are um, other brick walls that we're going to be that are harder brick walls because these are J curves um, that are going to be happening um, sooner than the the uh, the problem of of climate change. We have a, a certain amount of elasticity against climate change. By the way, you know you can move parts of Vancouver or build seawalls or. Uh, and, and not to diminish it at all. In fact, I, I, just as an aside, I would say that there's not a week goes by that something in, P, in Proceedings National Academy of Sciences or, or Science or Nature or any of the, the, the larger journals, um, there's a new discovery. That, that <laughs> there's a new positive feedback loop which makes things even worse with uh, uh, or just just em- environmental data, uh, so so um, I'm not at all diminishing the issue of um, of climate change, but there are other ones that we're up against uh, some hard walls. So you asked a very broad question about environmental issues and what do we do, and there's a whole lot of them that we have to face other than eating up part of the river valley and greenhouse gases. It's part of a larger context which I'd like to talk to you about sometime. Yeah, I like this uh, phrase. I don't know if I'm getting exactly what you said, if I'm paraphrasing exactly, but uh, you said something uh, to the effect that we don't want to do things for the environment at the expense of the environment. These are the kinds of complexities that people need to think through, right? What what does one project do that we can, you know, then speak about how we're, you know, turning to green energy and having green water sources that, you know, forsakes or erases or doesn't take into consideration other issues? I wanted to ask you, um, what do you want the future to look like? You can talk about that in terms of um, the municipality, the city, not what you think it will look like, but what you want it to look like. I I, I ask this of all of my uh, interview subjects because I'm very curious about what our various um, like ideas about the future are and what these um, these futures that we're working towards look like? You know, that that's such a huge question, and I could go on at, at length, but but um, because this, this um, 
podcast is involved with environmental issues specifically. I really I think that um, Edmonton is a uh, it's it's where it's located naturally. Um, the we're at an ecotone between the parkland and the boreal. The north facing banks you tend to get boreal. Um, uh, ecology, and then the south-facing banks, you, you, you get parkland. Or the, I mean, n- not entirely, but it, when I say an ecotone, there's an integration. So we're, we're really lucky. It's not like living in the middle of the prairies, where it's prairies all around, right, where where we have the benefit of two, um, uh, you know, general uh, ecosystems. I, I live adjacent to Fulton Ravine, and I live in the woods. You can't see my house um, because I, I love what we have here. I love the natural environment. And I invite you to come and visit, by the way. Um, and uh, this, if, so there's a lot of solutions. We, we, the, we, we, people are finally beginning to use native vegetation uh, here instead of just planting out petunias, which they did every year. Um, but there's even some bit city bylaws that need to be revised. Uh, issues like you can't have grass higher than 15 inch inches. If you don't mow it, you're, you're in trouble. Well, I've got friends that are planting native prairie in their front yards and have been ticketed by city bylaw. We have a problem there. Okay. Um, so, um, I mean, all you need to do, I think it would, can you imagine how wonderful it would be if the city were, were, you know, not just arboreal on the, on the, the street, uh, divisions or, you know, street edges on, on some of the, the areas. But in fact, that we were really returned to um, something that looked like, in, in our subdivisions, something that looked like the river valley, the way it looked before, before we developed that, before we came over 100 years ago and cleared land for agriculture. Um, what a, what a fantastic, I think it's, I just, you know, I've lived here a long time. I I think it's a beautiful place. I think Edmonton is a beautiful place, and I want to preserve that uh, as much as possible. So I think that's one of the po- selling points that I think Sierra Club has worked on, is to say, can we preserve what's what's unique about Edmonton, what's, what's really beautiful? Because not all cities have preserved their river valleys. Well, you've given us lots to think about, so thank you so much for sharing all of this information and your perspectives on the uh, the proposed solar farm. For more information on the Prairie Chapter of the Sierra Club Canada, visit sierraclub.ca slash prairie. Thank you for listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast. Be sure to visit justpowers.ca to learn more about these issues, access resources, and discover related content. Just Powers is made possible by support from the University of Alberta's Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Cool Institute of Advanced Study, and Campus Saint-Jean. This series of the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast is produced by Jesse Beyer and engineered by Catlin W. Cusick.